Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a pure, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. Welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting, and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We are going to, this week, go back and revisit one of my favorite episodes, and guess what? Thematically appropriate, it's our Thanksgiving episode. Last year, we talked to Chef Samin Nazrat, author of the book Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, about how to make your Thanksgiving better. And then I just talked to her about cooking because I love cooking and I love her book. And it's honestly one of my favorite conversations I've had. I wanted to say on this show, but I think ever might be the answer to that. Like it might be up there with some of my most fundamental conversations with my wife. That is how much I enjoyed talking to Samin Nasrat about cooking. And in the time since that episode aired, her book has become a terrific Netflix show, which you should check out. It's four episodes, one about salt, one about fat, one about acid, one about heat. And it's kind of a travelogue, but it's also like a show about understanding what makes food delicious. It's the only cookbook you'll ever need. It's the only cooking show you'll ever need. And I am so happy to have Samin on the show to talk with us again. This is an episode from last year, so if you've already heard it, you know, you might want to skip over it, but you're probably like preparing a turkey or something. So listen to it again. She's got some great stuff to say. Samin, thank you for stopping by. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So we're doing this right before Thanksgiving. Can you tell me what is the number one mistake people make when they're making their Thanksgiving dinners? Oh my God, there are so many. <laughs> but I think the, uh, <laughs> I think for me, what I would say the main um, problem, not so much during the making, but maybe at the table and um, in the eating and I guess involved in the whole meal is that most Thanksgiving dinners, traditional menus, really, really lack acid. And, you know, people are like, what's acid? What are you talking about? And I'm talking about really anything tangy or sour. And what acidity does in our cooking is it provides a contrast. And contrasts are what we find to be so delightful and give us so much pleasure when we're eating. And everything on the Thanksgiving table really tends toward the salty or the starchy or the rich or sometimes even the bland. And... um, Often the only acidic thing on the entire table is cranberry sauce, which is why most people just keep spooning cranberry sauce under their plates, (laughs) you know, to balance (laughs) out the richness of the mashed potatoes and the gravy and all that kind of stuff. So for me, I think the biggest takeaway that I can hope to pass on to people who read the book or are listening today is make a few more acidic condiments and really do your best to work a little bit of wine or citrus juice or vinegar or, you know, apple cider or something into your meal into unexpected places to offer that contrast. What are, you mentioned apple cider, you mentioned wine. What what are some other like dishes or like side dishes that could provide that, that acid kick while still being, you know, Thanksgiving-y? 
Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think even in a lot of the most traditional dishes, there are simple ways to work a little bit of acid in. And so, for example, in Thanksgiving stuffing, which is probably my very favorite part of the whole meal, I will often, um, you know, make a little bit of sausage, like ground up sausage meat with some white wine in there. I'll soak prunes, which, you know, or any dried fruit, which is a little bit acidic in white wine, which adds a little sort of bomb of acidity. I'll use sourdough bread, which is naturally sour. Um, I'll work creme fraiche or sour cream instead of cream and butter into mashed potatoes. When I'm making the gravy, I might add a fresh little splash of white wine, pickled shallots on top of green beans. And of course, you know, for me, I'm a big salad person. So I'll make a whole bunch of really, really nicely bright salads, things like... um, chicory salad with persimmon and pomegranate and balsamic vinaigrette or, you know, just a squeeze of lemon over some greens. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. How about turkey? Because uh, the sort of the classic uh, American uh, Thanksgiving problem (laughs) is that the turkey's too dry. Like, what's your solution to combat that? So, okay, here's the deal. <laughs> there was this great video a few years ago that this woman, Mary Risley, put out. I don't know if you guys, if it like hit the New York media scene, but it was sort of the classic, um, it was it was a big video here in San Francisco. And this woman, Mary Risley, used to have this cooking school called Taunt Marie, and she made this great video that just was like, the turkey's going to be dry. Just, you know, like there's nothing you can do about the fucking turkey. Just put the it turkey in the oven and make everything else good. And so mm-hmm. I think there are certainly things you can do to improve the texture of your turkey. And it doesn't have to be dry. Certainly salting it in advance, whether it's just salt or brine, will help increase the moistness of the meat. You know, not overcooking it. I, I prefer to take my bird apart and cook the two parts separately so I can get them to the right temperature. But if you don't want to do that, um, just keep a really close eye on it. Make sure to bring it up to room temperature and temper it is a big part. You know, I consider all the stuff that happens before food hits a source of heat as part of active cooking as well. You know, like bringing meat up to room temperature, bringing a pot of water fully to a boil, all those kinds of things will affect how food cooks. So it's important to consider them as well. But um, I like spatchcocking my turkey so that you get sort of more even browning, a lot more surface gets browned. And then the whole thing cooks more quickly, which allows you to get the breasts out of the oven before the whole thing gets overcooked. The other thing, the final like little tip I'll have is if you're serving a lot of people, maybe instead of one huge turkey, get two small ones because they'll cook more evenly and you'll have um, a less opportunity to overcook that breast. Yeah, yeah. Are you a, are you a Thanksgiving traditionalist, or do you like to to swap in like like uh, my one of my bosses, uh, Ezra Klein, has frequently said he he makes uh, I think pork loin instead of turkey, or when when he was when he was still cooking a, a Thanksgiving uh, centerpiece. What uh, like like do you like to swap in certain things? Yeah, you know, I didn't. My family's from Iran, and my yeah. parents came here shortly before I was born, and they really wanted to preserve our culture for us. So I didn't grow up with Thanksgiving, so I don't have a lot of childhood nostalgia assigned to any particular dishes. It's more that I like to eat those things. I love the smell of, you know, celery and butter and thyme cooking together. So I always sort of aim for a little bit of that. But since my Thanksgiving location often changes, you know, (laughs) different families, different friends, um, I don't have a ton that I am obsessed with. What I love is it's the the time of year 
here in California for persimmons and pomegranates and also Dungeness crab often comes into season right before. So actually this year I was thinking I would just forego the turkey altogether and have crab and French uh, crab and garlic bread. <laughs> that sounds great. I, I, w- I would eat crab and garlic bread any day of the week. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, this book because this is my favorite cookbook in a long time uh, and one that really changed how I think about cooking. So tell me a little bit about just the process of like conceptualizing it. And then I'm really interested to hear about the process of writing a cookbook. So we'll come back to that. But tell me about like how the idea came together. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much for your kind words, first of all. So um, it was a long journey. It was a long journey. So it's been amazing to see people really getting it and responding well to it. You know, it was a serendipitous route brought me into the kitchen. I didn't grow up cooking. And then in college, I started busing tables at Chez Panisse Restaurant in Berkeley. And I became so enchanted by the cooks and the kitchen that I begged them to first let me volunteer and then eventually um, become an actual intern in the kitchen. And as they were teaching me, as I was learning, you know, the menu there changes every single day. And so it was really hard for me to keep up because I didn't know anything. And these guys were one day making paella, the next day making, you know, bouillabaisse, the next day making pesto and, you know, all sorts of things from all over the world using all different ingredients. And so there wasn't an obvious um, thread to somebody like me who knew nothing. So I had to just learn by doing over time. And because I have this crazy mind and I'm always looking for patterns, eventually I started to see these patterns and I noticed that no matter what we were doing, we were always paying attention to these four elements, to salt, fat, acid, and heat. And so we always salted our meat the night before we cooked it because that made it taste better. It didn't matter if we were roasting it or braising it or grilling it. Um, You know, it just was sort of a basic tenet of what we did. We always, it was so important always to salt the water properly and make sure the water that we were going to cook in was really, really highly seasoned so that the food that we cooked in it would become seasoned from within in the time that it cooked. And this was, I really noticed this kind of stuff when we would do tasters, which was every single day we'd make um, a test of each dish that we were serving on the menu to make sure it was just right. And it really was the chef's vision on the plate. And we'd all gather around the plate and take a bite. And always the things that we noticed and always the things we had to adjust were salt and fat and acid. And so same thing, the whether, you know, if we were going for Italian food, we used olive oil. If we were going for French flavors, we used butter. If um, something fell flat, but it had plenty of salt, the answer was often just a few drops of vinegar or something tangy like a dollop of yogurt or creme fraiche. And of course, heat was really sort of the most mind-boggling thing for me was I had only ever followed recipes that always had said, you know, you must put this in the oven at 375 for precisely 18 minutes at a timer, pull it out, it'll be done. And these guys, you know, they use timers to not forget their pine nuts in the oven, but the ovens didn't really even have temperature dials anymore. They had all been worn down. So people would just sort of wave their arm near the oven to determine if it was approximately 300 or approximately 500. And 
I realized that in general, we just wanted to put things in either at a very high temperature and cook it quickly or at a sort of moderate temperature and cook it slowly. And as for cooking things on the stove, we often would bring things to a boil and turn them down to a simmer. And that was how pretty much, you know, anything could be cooked. (laughs) There are, of course, some exceptions. But once I started to understand, oh, these guys don't know every recipe in the world. They just know the sort of basic tenets of good cooking. And the recipes come from familiarity with geography and with travel and reading cookbooks and understanding that, you know, um, basil and pine nuts are what they use in Liguria because that's what grows in Liguria. And just across the border in Provence, they also use basil and pine nuts. And so it just happens to be that it's two different countries, but really it's their geography and their landscape that determines these flavors. Wow. So so do you think the the average American home cook is too indebted to recipes? Like, where do you see recipes coming into, like, someone's cooking education? Well, you know, if you think about the old days, <laughs> the olden times, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, or the way that we used to learn how to cook, it was probably a lot more like how my mom learned how to cook from my grandma, Mm -hmm. which was, oh, you put enough water over the rice to come up to your first knuckle. So yeah, that's a recipe, you know, and then you cook it till the water's gone. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it it, it was also, you know, teaching you to use your senses and teaching you to use your, you know, all of your senses, including common sense. And I think, of course, recipes are helpful and that's how we pass down tradition. And that's how somebody who maybe doesn't know something can um, follow their curiosity and get to try it for the first time. But yeah, I do think that we have been sort of trained to be over-reliant on them because those other sources of information and tradition have been sort of systematically taken away from us. And I think for me, my if I can do something, it's to champion people returning to using their senses and returning to feeling a little bit confident and, you know, making mistakes. It's only dinner. It's okay if it's not perfect. And a lot of the times recipes aren't perfect either. And so the way that you make something really great is maybe you follow that recipe, but then you taste it and adjust it. And at the end, you add the condiment that's going to really make it amazing or just a few grains of salt or something. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, uh, I, I read the book and felt so empowered, I guess. And I was like, I'm going to make myself a salad and a little dressing to go with it. And I screwed up the dressing really badly. And <laughs> But then like, I, because I'd read the book, I knew how to make it like palatable, if that makes sense. Um, so I was able to kind of pull it around, but I had that moment of like, you fool, you shouldn't have given up on recipes. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, that's a success right there though. You know, uh, I think for me, I have made so many mistakes and I continue to make them. And it was really important for me to build into the book, the sort of like, I know you will go take the, take this and get so excited about using salt that for a while you'll make all your food way too salty. Like we all do that. Mm-hmm. Everyone I've ever taught does that. Everyone I've ever learned to cook alongside has done, gone through that phase. But then how do you correct that and move on? How do you learn from that and move on? That's really what I want to sort of empower and imbue people with. So I'm so glad that you could fix it. You know, salad dressing, what is it? It's like oil, salt, vinegar. So if it's off, yeah. it's just because one of those things – you know, there's not enough or there's too much. So you just tinker the ratios till you till you get it right. And, you know, depending on what you're serving it with, sometimes it needs to be more acidic or less acidic. So the first half of the book is really kind of the science of cooking. And then the second half, you do have some recipes, but they're kind of well-chosen 
to teach you certain principles that are in the book or to offer you room to experiment with like, one of them is a mayonnaise. It's just like, here are all of the things you can do with a mayonnaise. Like, how did you choose the places where you were going to include, like, here are instructions for making a dish, but also now you should know enough to kind of play around with it? <laughs> um, so you should know about me if it's not immediately clear that I hate recipes. <laughs> and a big part of why I was just telling my best friend this the other day. A big part of why I hate them is because I didn't have enough confidence in myself to write ones that would get across, you know, these ideas because I've never really trusted them. So I didn't believe in myself that I could teach you and give you – because what did I do? I just spent, you know, 300 pages telling you you don't need recipes. So then it does feel a little disingenuous to follow it up with a bunch of recipes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But obviously, like, a publisher would not publish a cookbook without them. And also, I didn't want to throw people to the wolves. You know, like, I'll teach these classes and we'll have together 20, 30, 40 hours of class. And I'll teach salt, fat, acid, heat. I'll teach you improvisational cooking and at the end the whole and the whole time I'm like you guys you can totally do this and then you know at the end of a week or two weeks they'll come to me and the first question is like so where's the recipe packet so I did see that people you know need something they need a little hand holding to get to the point where they start to understand the ratios and the basics and so for me this was really I mind you know the past 15 years of my own cooking to think about what is it that I'm always returning to where are these things that have the sort of golden ratios that you can start to memorize. You know, a mayonnaise, like the basic ratio, mine's a little bit different, but the basic ratio that's pretty easy to remember is one egg yolk and one cup of oil or, you know, so if I can teach you that and you know over time what it is that you're tasting for, then eventually you'll be able to do it and you you don't even have to measure out the oil. You can just sort of get to the point where it tastes right and you know that it's right. Same thing with the salad dressing, same thing with pasta. So I just wanted to give people sort of a basic canon. And what's funny is like uh, there's only one braise recipe really. I mean there's maybe two because there's a chicken one too, but there's one sort of master braise recipe for this braised pork. But of course, the whole idea is if you are able to put all of the things that you've learned into practice, you know, from the first part of the book, and you can use these geographical spice charts and fat charts and acid charts, of course, you can vary the meat. Of course, you can vary the flavors and you can make any of these braises from around the world. So I wanted to sort of connect dots for people. That was sort of much more important for me than any one recipe was here are how all of these pastas are um, connected. Here are how all of these different salads and salad dressings can be combined to create, you know, so much more than I could give you in seven pages of recipes. Yeah. So I, I just, for me, teaching people the thinking and the patterns is so much more important than any one recipe. Yeah. Yeah. Salt and fat kind of have a bad name uh, in American dietary uh, restrictions. And uh, so when I when I first read the book, I was I was going to make some spaghetti, and I started just putting handfuls of salt into the water. And my wife was like, "What the, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing?" Uh, I was, and I said, "No, the book says it should taste like seawater." Um, and uh, but I'm like I'm wondering like how do you overcome sort of that natural inclination where we hear, "Oh, you need a lot of you need this amount of salt, you need this amount of fat," like in the proportions that they should be used. Oh, it's so complicated. I mean, so much of this goes to 
what people have been hearing for 20 or 30 or 40 years, you know, through the media and all this kind of stuff. And of course, there is some truth to the fact that we should be careful about how much salt and fat we're consuming. But I also think <laughs> that um, if you know how to make your food taste good and, and you are more comfortable in your home kitchen, you'll cook more and you'll become a better cook and you will rely less on the processed foods and on eating out and on the things that really are truly the sources of salt and fat that make us sick. So um, using a little bit more olive oil, if it's good olive oil, is not going to be the thing that causes the main um, issue. So for me, the thing is always to give people the taste experience. So in the classes, you know, like I'll always set up two pots of water side by side. And I even tell you to do it in the book if you don't trust me, if you don't trust my salt prescription is the right one, then do another one. Do them side by side and cook two handfuls of green beans and see which one tastes better to you. And, you know, yes, you're putting a big handful of salt or two or three in a pot of water, but 99% of that salt goes down the drain. It's only about creating a salty enough environment for the brief time that the food spends in the water to make it properly seasoned from within. And frankly, I, I'm I'm not sure. I can't pull up these studies. But I have read before that um, a lot of the time, you know, if your food is properly seasoned as you go, you end up adding a lot less salt at the table. And that's really often where a lot of the, like, unhealthy consumption of salt happens. So I think to me, and in terms of fat, in terms of both of them, a lot of the time it's not even about using more. You know, and when you salt your meat, you don't necessarily have to use more. It's about adding it at the right time, adding it in advance, or using fat in a pan to create a nice surface, a medium to brown your food properly. But then you can leave that oil in the pan when you take your food out and dab it on a paper towel. And you don't have a greasier, you know, piece of chicken. You just have a properly browned piece of chicken. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you think about a lot of really good chefs often kind of, they, they learn sort of these basic tenets and then they go by instinct. But I feel like you really dove into the science of why these things work the way they do. What was interesting to you about that question of the science of cooking, I guess? Um, I, you know, I am just very curious and I like to understand how things work. And so, um, and to be honest, some of the science was like above my pay scale. Like, <laughs> like I had to sure. talk to some several food scientists and a lot of it I didn't fully get, but some things really, really did click for me. Things like, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm also just like a dweeb. And so I got really excited. I got a pH, I got a pH meter and I wanted to know, you know, why is it that I love lime juice so much? And it's because it's of all of the citrus juices, it's the most acidic. And so, and I grew up in a family and in a culture that has a really acidic palate. And I, you know, to me, I, of course I love that more than lemon or Meyer lemon or anything like that. So I I liked understanding the why. And I feel like some people having the why can convince you if me telling you isn't going to be enough, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've mentioned, you know, sort of you, you come from an Iranian background. What did working on this book sort of teach you about the culture of food that you came from? Oh, man. Uh, It just gave me so much appreciation for how hard my mom worked to create – well, A, to cook for us Persian food from scratch every night, which I believe really is one of the most labor-intensive cuisines that I've ever encountered. And also just like how much work she put into – 
instilling a sense of our culture for me and my brothers really through the way that she cooked for us and the way that we ate and the way that our family gathered around the table. And um, I also really learned how sophisticated Persian cooking is. You know, it is so much about balance and so much about giving people different tastes and textures and many contrasts in a single meal um, on a single plate at the same time. And that isn't something that I really in, ha, encounter very often, like at the typical American dinner table. And uh, yeah, so it was just I, I I have a lot more respect and appreciation, certainly for my mom and grandma and all the women who came before me. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I'll sort of on the flip side of that, either during your travels when you were sort of training to become a chef, but also while you were researching this book, like what is maybe a cuisine you weren't as familiar with that you came to really think was you really loved it or you really just were like impressed by it. It was something that maybe surprised you with how much you enjoyed it. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I uh, <laughs> this is not the most uh, like um, amazing and exotic answer, but the cuisine that just like continues to delight me and surprise me and teach me so much more, just unfold itself over time to me is Mexican food, which is really so many cuisines, you know, the cuisines yeah, yeah. of so many cultures. And, and um, you know, because I grew up in San Diego, and so I had the sort of basis of like tacos and burritos and that kind of stuff, which I have always loved. But as I've spent more time visiting different parts of Mexico and becoming familiar with so many different parts, so many different special ingredients that I really haven't encountered and just... Um, the ways that like history and time and just the way of the world has affected this place and its foods, it's really remarkable to me. And what's amazing is there's a dish, um, there's a dish called fesenjun in Iran, and it's a pretty complicated and sophisticated dish that like, it's definitely like an acquired taste. Like I didn't love it as a kid. It's, um, you sort of brown onions either in duck fat or, or goose fat or just butter. And then you toast walnuts and you grind them all up. You grind all this stuff up with pomegranate juice. So it's this like sweet, sour, rich thing that gets mm -hmm. then like cooked with duck or chicken or lamb. And you eat that traditionally with rice and it's kind of brown. Like kids aren't really very likely to like it or whatever. And <laughs> yeah. I remember, I, <laughs> I remember, um, you know, uh, when I finally tasted, you know, real moles and I started eating moles and understanding like, wow, this very sophisticated thing that has a list of ingredients, you know, three pages long that is cooked with all of these things and gets this texture. Wow. Like that's very similar to our you know, fesenjun. And so it was kind of this amazing thing to sort of over time be able to connect the dots around the world. That's one of my delights is seeing the repetition, say, of like um, cilantro and jalapeno and maybe even like coconut. It appears, you know, in Thailand, it appears in Italy. I'm sorry, it appears not in Italy. <laughs> it appears <laughs> in India. It appears in, um, and then it appears, you know, those flavors then again appear in Mexico. And so you think like, well, what's the, what's the, you know, historical thread that brought this to these places is, yes, of course, there were, you know, like there was colonization and like sort of spice route travels, but also like those are all more or less like, you know, closer, close-ish to the equator, these places. And so their, you know, locations allow for these ingredients to grow here. And so there are weird ways in which the spices and flavor combinations in Indian food and Mexican food are very similar. And I love that, you know? Yeah. 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 What are some of the, what are some dishes that kind of have 
obviously now we live in a, a global global society, so you know you can find Thai food literally in any city in the United States if you want to. But <laughs> like before we lived in that world, like what are some of the dishes that kind of versions of them pop up everywhere? Like just for example, like it seems like every culture has a certain kind of stew that it like makes really well. Yes, I think for sure the braises, you know, like, and I, there's the soups that like chicken soups the heart, that like are there for, for your kid when you're sick. There's this, there's often like a rice and chicken kind of thing that I, that I, I see a lot. Um, and obviously, yes, the braises. And I think, and also beans and grain and legumes appear a lot, not everywhere, but a lot. And to me, I think, well, this goes back to the same idea of, you know, there's only so many ways to cook meat, say, because, you know, all cooks over time, no matter where they came from, from around the world, sort of realized, oh, the cuts from the animal that um, on the body don't do a lot of work, those meats are already tender, right? Those mm-hmm. are the chicken breasts and the steaks and the pork loins and all that kind of stuff. That meat already has plenty of fat and it's quite tender. So in cooking, it's our job retain that tenderness and you get that by cooking something quickly over high heat, you know? Yeah. And then all of the other extreme cuts from the front and the back of the animal, from the legs, all the muscles that are doing tons of work, that's where sinew gets developed. And that's where there's just a lot of like, um, you know, what's called silver skin and like fascia and all those things, those need to get cooked very gently over low heat for an extended period of time to become tender. And so for some cultures, that's digging a hole underground, you know, and building a fire and cooking a lamb underground overnight. For other cultures, that's um, making a braise and making a stew. So yeah, a lot of people have figured out their braise and their stew for those sinewy, bony, cartilaginous cuts. So, you know, in Vietnam, that becomes pho, you know, with tendons in it. And then you go to, you know, yeah, and then you go, you see carnitas with pork shoulder and you go and you see... Um, I don't know, like beef bourguignon made with like chuck or whatever, a pot roast. And so, and even American pot roast. And yeah. so it's kind of, and then everything else becomes sausage. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's like, there are only so many ways that cooking um, works, period. Yeah. And that's sort of like, you know, at the heart of my idea that, that or of this idea, it's not even my idea, it's just this idea that like good cooking around the world, no matter where you are, it's really more similar then it is different. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. The news today seems really grim, and it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect, a show about possible solutions. Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Simply tell the Border Patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. Listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 
You were talking about the dish that, that is brown, and kids don't like things that are brown. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm wondering how much you think about presentation when you're making these meals. Like, obviously, smell and taste are, like, the two most important senses. But certainly, like, sight plays a big role in, like, how we consume food. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to me, I, I am a student of the senses. I was trained at the House of Aesthetics, Alice's House of, House of Aesthetics, <laughs> where we were taught, you know, she, Alice Waters is obsessed with the way things look and the way a room makes you feel and the flowers and the smells and all those things. And so, of course, I care about how things look, but to me, taste is paramount mm. and um, and so I would rather eat something that's ugly that tastes good than something that's pretty and doesn't taste good. So to me, I'm always sort of weighing the uh, importance of those different things. But a lot of the time for me, the idea of what's beautiful comes into play even earlier than when I'm cooking. It comes into play when I'm shopping. And so I'll I'll be so excited to buy, you know, golden beets or Kyoja beets, those beets that are like candy cane striped, you know, yeah. or, um, you know, a few different colors of carrots or here – I live in sort of the promised land of produce, so we can get like all the different colors and one million different kinds of beans, you know, yeah. <laughs> and um, or tomatoes, you know, and make I'll be like, oh, I really want to make a tomato salad that's that's just shockingly gorgeous. And so I'll think about that when I'm buying the tomatoes and especially in the moment of heirloom tomatoes when there's so many different ones to look at. I'll, I'll prioritize what it is that I'm after. But I also know for me that like my two favorite varieties, the most flavorful varieties, you know, one's a plain looking red guy and the other one's a little orange cherry tomato. And so sometimes maybe I'm just going to have those. And because I want to shock people more in their mouths than I do um, – than I do with the way things look. So I'm always sort of balancing it back and forth, yeah. I guess, but but I don't I'm not I'm not a precious cook. And so to me, um, if it doesn't taste good, I'm just not gonna bring it home. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about like the process of writing a book like this. Like because I've never thought about like it's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought about what it takes to write a cookbook. What were some books you looked at for inspiration? Like other cookbooks that you were like, yes, I want to try and do a little bit like this. <laughs> oh man. Um, so my friend Tamar Adler wrote this beautiful book called An Everlasting Meal, which is just so exquisitely written, you know? And so to me, I was a writer before I was ever a cook. And I've always, I, I, I believe this is true in all food, right? You know, f good food writing is good writing. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I wanted to write well and for it to happen to be about food. And I worked really hard and that was really hard. I had never written something so long. I had never worked on anything that had so many moving pieces and, um, you know, had such a sort of job to do. I learned through, only through writing how difficult science writing is. You yeah. know, on one of my earlier drafts, I, I took a lot of liberties with the science and uh, some science some science people had to come sort of set me straight that you can't be too poetic in your science writing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it means something, you know. And then also I was teaching. I had a lot, I had a sort of... Um, Unlike, I think, a lot of cookbooks, you know, who who maybe have a different purpose, like my job, I felt, was really to teach. And so I felt um, like that was the ultimate task. I could be saying flowery things, but if they didn't get my point across and if they didn't 
really instruct you and give you something to put in your pocket and carry around with you, then I wasn't doing what I set out to do. So it took a lot of work and I'm not known for being um, concise. (laughs) And so it took a lot of, there was just a lot of distilling, a lot of combing, a lot of cleaning up, a lot of cutting things out. And it took a really long time. It took five years. So yeah. Um, but I'm so glad that it's done. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you, the book also kind of functions not not really as a memoir, but it certainly talks about moments of realization for you. What was uh, what was interesting to you about combing through your own history with these techniques, about finding the right anecdotes? Yeah. So to me, uh, I love that you brought that up. So um, this also goes a little bit into your last question too, which I didn't really fully answer. But, um, you know, my writing sort of mentor, my teacher is Michael Pollan, who I was a fan of long before I ever met him and worked with him. And one thing I've always loved and admired about the way that he writes is he can really take these very complicated – and sometimes what one might think uninteresting topics <laughs> hmm. and um, and bring you in on his level, which is often as the beginner. And so, you know, he wrote a book about building a house. He wrote a book about like being a gardener, an amateur gardener and about being an amateur cook. And so he has this way of going in as an amateur and learning about something and taking taking you as the reader on the journey with him so that you're learning when he's learning and he's penetrating this really complicated stuff, but he's not talking down to you. It's not like, look what I know here, I'm going to show it to you. And so actually one of the first sort of times that I sat down to write, I really was like trying to do my best Michael Pollan impression, which was really quite bad. Hmm. And <laughs> and I was like, here, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take you on this journey with me. But it didn't work because I needed to be speaking as an authority and I needed to be telling you what I know so that Um, you could trust that I knew what was going on, you know? But so a great way, a great tool for me in my cooking classes and whenever I'm just, you know, teaching any cooks anything is to sort of put myself back in that beginner moment, in those moments that I did make those mistakes and those times that I did have those aha moments. That works for me really well in the class is to say like, oh God, like I messed up so many cakes because X, Y, Z, and then I realized this, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and people are like, oh, I mess up all those cakes because of X, Y, Z too. Like, so there's a way where it's a friendlier way to teach and it's a, um, it's a way for people to relate to me and to, you know, and for me, frankly, to relate to the reader and to remember all these years in the anxieties that people have when they're standing, you know, there with a knife and they're like, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? Like, you yeah. know, <laughs> how do I get, how do I do this? Yeah. Yeah. When you, um, so when you, when you were writing this, obviously I'm sure some things got cut. What's something you had to cut that you still sort of miss? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, so I, I got to work with this fantastic illustrator, Wendy McNaughton, who is just a joy and we became so close through the making of this. And it was really fun because I had to teach her how to cook. She didn't know how to cook. So in order for her to be able to convey these kind of complicated um, ideas in illustration, she had to understand what it was that we were talking about. And so, um, God, there were so many illustrations that I wanted her to do that she just refused to do. <laughs> I mean, I also squeezed everything out of her, like over the course. She worked her butt off. We 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 really had a great time and she did so much. But I'm trying to think of like 
there were a lot of ideas I had for very complicated charts that just never uh, fully materialized. But, oh, man, what did I leave out that I – you know, one big thing, actually, this isn't so much a chart, but one big um, thing that I think, like, I'm known for in the cooking world that I um, inhabit is making pasta yeah. from scratch, making uh, – and and I spent, you know, two years living in Italy where I made pasta every day. I spent five years at a restaurant where I made pasta every single day. So it's a big part of sort of my personal cooking repertoire and um, it was a shame for me to have to cut fresh pasta making from the book and to not be able to include that. It just didn't seem like the right kind of thing that demonstrated any of the sort of salt, fat, acid, heat basics. And it was a little too – it would have taken a few too many pages for me. Yeah. <laughs> it just wasn't – it was It was just a little bit too, too much. So, in fact, the other day, um, the writer, Michael Ruhlman, he sent me an email. He's like, I can't believe you didn't put pasta in. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, you're the only person who's noticed so far. So <laughs> – <laughs> What's uh? What do you love about what do you love about making pasta? I I'm saying this as someone who always buys boxed because I can't imagine myself ever like making that leap. But what do you love about making fresh pasta? Well, I also do love boxed pasta, and to me, they fulfill two vastly different roles. So there's a place for the fresh, and there's a place for the dry. So I I don't think one replaces the other. But I love that it's something that I really just have. I've done so many times that I just know how it feels and I know what's going on completely by the feel to the point where like I don't have to measure anything and um, it's I'm – a, I'm a pretty – I'm just a dweeb who like goes very often too much to the cerebral. So for me, cooking is a great way to get into my body and, f- and get out of my head and it's a big part of why I haven't abandoned a life as a cook completely and I sort of – try to have, you know, half my life as a cook and half my life as a writer because I get to experience both parts of my brain and and like ideally get into my body. So what I love about cooking is that and specifically making pasta is it really is a very sensual act for me and I feel very happy just making it and um yeah, now it's like I've made enough pasta in my life. I've done it enough times that it's not this huge undertaking. You know, I have all the contraptions and all that kind of stuff. It goes pretty fast. But um, but I think that comes with experience in any um, field, in any task, and it's kind of a great joy to be able to reach that. So my hope is that people, you know, will get to the point where they're comfortable enough doing things where it doesn't seem like this huge undertaking every time they like uh, take out a pot in a pan or, <laughs> yeah. you know, have to measure out some flour or whatever. Obviously, the goal of any cookbook is to help home chefs eat more at home. But like, what do you see sort of as in the world of like a, of like a good cook or a good eater? Like, what do you see the role of the restaurant of going out to eat, playing and like developing your own tastes? Ooh, ooh, I like this question. Um, I I think you know, to me, I think no matter what kind of a cook you are, even if you're a person who doesn't ever cook and thinks you may never cook, we are all eaters and we can all develop good palates. And I think um, being a thoughtful eater and being a person who's really conscientious sort of with every bite that you take is the first step to becoming a really good cook. And 
that was something that I really, you know, it was just pounded into me at Chez Panisse was how often we had to taste and how we had to taste and think and be able to articulate what it was that we were tasting, what was in balance and what wasn't in balance. And for me, I love doing that now. Like when something's really good, I just love sort of trying to figure out what makes it so good. You know, uh, one experience I had recently in New York was I went to um, Cafe Altro Paradiso, Ignacio Matos's like Italian restaurant, sure. and I'd never been there before. And we went, we ordered, I went with a big group and we ordered so much stuff. And so <laughs> we, I think we ordered everything. And we and it just one after another, it was so delicious. And at one point, um, actually the one thing we didn't order was this octopus. So they sent us this octopus and it was just like octopus with chickpeas. And I took a bite and I like octopus fine. Like it's something I think is really delicious. And I took a bite of it and it was it was maybe the most delicious thing I've ever tasted in my whole – I mean, it just like exploded with flavor in my mouth. And my mind was going bananas because I was trying to figure out why it was so good. I couldn't – I just couldn't piece it together because it looked like any other sort of like Italian plate of octopus with chickpeas. Like it wasn't It wasn't so, you know, daring or different or like inventive in the way it was presented or any – like nothing about it seemed new. But it tasted just unbelievably delicious. <laughs> and so I had to beg, I had to beg the server. I was like, what is the deal with the octopus? Why is it so good? <laughs> and she said, and she was like, well, I don't think they want you to know this, but I'm going to tell you. And I was like, and now I'm going to tell you that she was like, I, he, you know, he cooks it and then he glazes it with fish sauce. And I was like, of course, you know, it's this crazy thing. There's no fish sauce in Italian food. Although in ancient Rome, there was garum, which is another version of fish sauce. And fish sauce is pure umami. You know, it's pure flavor burst. And so never in a million years would I have connected the dot from like Vietnamese bottle of fish sauce to this Italian octopus. But it made so much sense. And it was so incredibly delicious that I was like, I am going to do that all the time now. You know, like, of course you can use these ingredients. So to me, it's like this amazing sort of mystery hunt all the time whenever I eat something that's really delicious to figure out why and how. Not so I can go home and put fish sauce on everything. I've ever cooked, just so I can understand how pieces fit together. And you know, what is fish sauce? It's salt, a little bit of funk, and some umami. And so adding that in in a secret way is only going to heighten this thing that, you know, might have otherwise fallen flat. And same thing when things don't work. You know, when you eat something in a restaurant, like the example I always use is like we've all had plenty of just like okay burritos, right? Like you get a bean burrito and it's just okay. So you get the burrito, you take a bite and you're like, okay. And then once the first thing you do, you're like, well, this needs some guacamole and salsa and sour cream and cheese. And so you start doctoring it up, right? You go to the salsa bar and you're like, I'm going to do this. And so you maybe didn't know what you were doing, but what you were already doing was being a good cook, right? What you were already doing was adjusting that salt and fat and acid. So that thing that you already know how to do, that thing that makes pizza taste good, that thing that makes Caesar salad taste good. It's it's just being thoughtful and getting, you know, really salt, fat, and acid in balance. So if you can learn a language for that and start to articulate that when you're eating in a restaurant or um, cooking at home, then you're going to be a better cook. So, and you know, what else is good about eating in restaurants is like someone's taking care of you and you don't have to do the dishes and you get to be inspired. You get to sit there with your friends and you don't have to think about getting up and going to do the stuff. So I'm not (laughs) anti-restaurants, but um, I think it's good, you know, to use every eating experience, no matter like how humble or simple as a way to sort of um, increase your cooking vocabulary. 
Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite restaurant to just like step into if you're just going to grab a sandwich or a salad? If you're like in a rush and just need to grab a lunch, like what what's what's your go to spot? Um, I basically will. I mean, do you want a specific place? It's, you know, it's sure. <laughs> or do you or, do you want like a, a more type general of answer? Place. Like whatever's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um. So to me, I uh, sorry to be broken record, but like I just love Mexican food so much, and even like not that good Mexican food is really easy for me. You know, to sort of like tinker with at the at the like salsa bar and make it pretty good. So that's sort of what I'll always look for is a yeah. is a Mexican food place like in an airport, but um you know in New York my this isn't actually this is similar to Mexican food in its condiment richness. In New York I love 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 um Taim, the falafel place for the mm. same reason there's just mm-hmm. so many sauces. I mean Taim is already delicious, but like then you just get to doctor your sandwich up with 1 million sauces and it tastes so good. And um yeah, at home here in the Bay Area, there's a really delicious restaurant in Oakland, Cosecha. It's just like a delicious Mexican place that I will eat at. I could eat there every single day. It's so good. Sure, sure. Um, so I think you may have answered this already with the octopus and chickpeas, but what's the last thing you ate that you didn't prepare that just like really blew your mind? Um, I feel like it's that. I mean, that octopus and chickpeas has just been stuck in my head for like two months. It, <laughs> it was so, so crazy. The other... The other thing that's um, kind of just like unbelievably delicious is this cake that seems – I have to say I heard about this cake for like a couple years before I ate it. And it's at a place called the 20th Century Cafe in San Francisco. It's this sort of um, Viennese-style coffee house. And she makes this honey cake. It has 20 layers. And it just, I don't know. I was like, ah, people just like it because it has a lot of layers. And I was like, I don't even like honey that much and whatever. And I went and had this cake and my brain couldn't handle, I just couldn't process how delicious it was and how not overly sweet it was, even though it was a honey cake. And it's something so simple. It just has like one frosting and one cake in many layers. And it was unbelievable. It was just exquisite. It was so, so amazing that I had to beg her, I had to beg the chef to, um, teach me about it and her secret ways. And so she, she did. So I, I get to write about it now. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we started with Thanksgiving. So I, I want to loop back to a few more questions I have about, about the big meal. Um, my, my first one is my wife loves mashed potatoes. I find mashed potatoes very bland and very boring. <laughs> like what, like what are, what are some ways I, I could sort of perk up the mashed potatoes this year? Okay. Okay. Here you go. I'm going to make you make, I'm going to make you love them. (laughs) (laughs) So first, the first and really most important thing is there's really no substitute for getting the salt into the potato as it cooks. So make sure that your potato water, the water that you cook the mashed potatoes in is plenty salty. Now it shouldn't be as salty as like pasta water because that, you know, it is the potatoes will absorb more water than pasta does, but try and get that seasoning right or as close to being right in the potato itself so that you're not adding salt later when you're mashing it. That'll make a big difference. And also I think, um, to me, I like using creme fraiche, but I think sour cream is also good. And because both are really, really tangy and have a nice tang. And then, and then of course, butter too, but cultured butter, if you can find it. So anything that can add some tang to this thing that's historically sort of just rich and bland is, is going to make a big difference. Great. Great. How about the green bean casserole made, made with, you know, the, the can mm. of beans and the French's onions and things like that? Do you do you uh, do you see any ways to, to perk that up? 
Okay, here, I have to admit to you, I don't actually... So I know there's the green beans in there. Is it like a can of cream of mushroom soup? Yeah, it's a can of... Is that it's, what it is? It's, okay. it's green, canned green beans, canned cream of, cream of mushroom soup, and then you sprinkle the, the, the dried French's onions across the top of it. Okay. Okay. Now, forgive... This might, like, offend some people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever. Um, but I would say it's probably important to use real fresh green beans. I would say that make would will probably make a big difference in mm-hmm. in just the taste of it. And then um yeah, for me I just forego the whole can thing cuz I think that's just like pure sort of salt and like um MSG. Not that I'm opposed to MSG, but that's just a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't want. And in this meal that's already so rich, I feel like that would just sort of clog up your taste buds. So for me I would try and figure out how can I like manufacture a homemade, maybe a slightly lighter version of that, which is maybe, I don't know, if you wanted to make like a really thin bechamel sauce and cook your cook your green beans in that and then just fry up some shallots to put on top. Um, I'm trying to think of like what delicious acidic thing you could put on it. Frankly, when we make green beans, like what I like to do is I just boil them, yeah. pull them off and then to- toss them with a vinaigrette, a really acidic vinaigrette and like maybe some chopped toasted hazelnuts or something like that because I feel like most of the things on that dinner table aren't bright green, you know, and green beans are a great way to get an actual vegetable (laughs) (laughs) onto the meat, onto the table that doesn't have to have the life cooked out of it. So, um, cause so much on that Thanksgiving table is just cooked, cooked, cooked for a really, really long time. Plus I feel like a challenge that a lot of people, including myself have is that there really is limited oven space on, you know, on this very oven heavy meal. And if there's an, you know, anything that you can do to take some dishes out of the oven and put them either on the stovetop or just make them so they can be served room temperature, that's going to save you a lot of stress in that last moment when like the turkey and the stuffing and everything's sort of fighting for oven space. Yeah. Yeah. I went to my first Thanksgiving when I lived in California, I I went and had dinner with uh, some friends who were vegetarians but they prepared a turkey anyway because they just they couldn't find like a replica, a vegetarian or vegan replica for like that centerpiece. Do you have uh-huh. do you have oh, thoughts yeah. on what, what that one. could be? Go for it. Yeah, I have this thing my friend makes that's so good. Um it's it's not a replacement for a turkey, but it's just so special that I feel like it's uh it can definitely be as dazzling, which he gets um a, a sort of a sweet heirloom pumpkin or or sometimes a large kabocha squash will work and he'll um, hollow it out and scoop out the seeds but leave the flesh in there and then he'll stuff that with a delicious very very moist stuffing and so um you know for him he'll, he'll use like sourdough bread it's really nice even if because there's not meat in there so you can even sneak in like parmesan cheese you could put kale in there and all of the like classic stuffingy things like butter and onions and celery and herbs all those things cooked together and carrots and then he just um like puts stuffs that in there and really douses it with a delicious stock and bakes that and so then you can actually if you bake it long enough um, with the, like, you can even put the, like, squash lid back on, you know, the jack-o'-lantern hat, <laughs> put it back on, <laughs> and you can bake the whole thing, and then when you bring it to the table, you can slice into the squash. So people get this beautiful slice of, like, roasted squash and then this delicious stuffing 
throughout. So I don't know. You could put greens in there. You could put any sort of roasted vegetable that you like. Um, but what I like about it is that it's it's very hearty and very rich and kind of like surprising that you don't just scoop the stuff out, but you actually cut up the squash itself. Yeah. And the other thing I will say, this is not so much a salt, fat, acid, or heat thing. It's just a Samin thing. <laughs> Um, my obsession. So like to me, like I said earlier, my very favorite thing is stuffing. Yes. But I am, but like, I think my love of stuffing comes through the fact that I was trained to cook at like a Frenchy Mediterranean restaurant. And there we were always making, um, panades, which are kind of this like poor, you know, like peasant food of Southern France, which is like, um, caramelized onions and stale bread cooked with stock. Sometimes there's a little cheese in there or whatever. But the like distinguishing thing about a panade is that there's so much stock in it. And there's a magical transformation that happens when you cook chicken stock and any starch, but certainly bread for a long time, there's just this sort of way where they come together and this like the stock reduces and there's just this like gelatinous quality that's so rich and the bread absorbs it or it happens when you cook rice in stock too. It just gets so meaty and delicious. And so um, it's really important to me whenever I make any stuffing, whether it has meat in it or not, to use a really nice quality homemade or like butcher store made stock and a lot of it, like make it really, really moist because what is happening on that Thanksgiving plate is again, a lot of dryness, right? Like often your turkey might be dry, your mashed potatoes are dry. So don't let the stuffing be another dry thing. Make it a really moist thing that like seems kind of scary. Like when you put the amount of stock in the bread and you push it down with a spatula, like the bread should almost be swimming in stock. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but it will absorb, you know, and that's why it's also important to use like a nice crusty French bread that can absorb a lot of stock and maybe is hopefully a little bit stale so it can really absorb a lot because it will over the course of 45 minutes in the oven absorb a lot of it, but it will just be this like, it's this other thing. It's, it's otherworldly. And anytime I've made stuffing that way for people, their minds like explode, you know, even people who are like, I've had the same stuffing for 47 years, my whole life or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we end every show by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to alter these a little bit to be more about food than like movies. Um, But uh, (laughs) I want, I want to start by asking uh, like, what is a, a memory you have of a time when you either cooked a meal or took someone to a restaurant or something like somebody you really cared about a friend or a romantic interest or a family member. And it just, it just went horribly. It was a disaster. They just didn't like whatever the food was, whether you had made it or someone else had. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm a good one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that was easy. (laughs) So when I was uh, a young cook at Chez Panisse, I was really excited. My mom was coming to the restaurant for the first time, you know, and it was this big deal for me to be working at this like well-known restaurant. My family doesn't, I didn't grow up eating fancy food or anything like that. So there wasn't really a sense of context exactly for my mom. I mean, she knew it was important for me, but she didn't really, I don't know. I don't think, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm, they're like, why are you not an engineer? They didn't understand why I was. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so she comes and I had, so, you know, the chef was my mentor. He'd taken me under his wing. He took a lot of care of me. And he even let me say to her, him, like the things I thought my mom would like to eat. So we put together this menu based on things that I had grown up eating and things I thought she would like to eat, including lamb. Mm-hmm. And so he made, he made this whole meal and he made the lamb and like they brought it out and 
she, you know, I I guess it just hadn't even occurred to me because like they had cooked the lamb as they do perfectly in medium rare and she wouldn't touch it. Like she didn't touch it. And to me, this was so embarrassing because here I am, like my mom has come. Everyone, in, I know from being in the kitchen that we look at every single plate when it comes back and the chef looks at every single plate and knows if someone doesn't eat the thing. And um, there's just not a way, like my mom is so stubborn. <laughs> she, there's like, I'm like, please just take a bite. She wouldn't take a bite. It just grossed her out so much. And so it was so fun. It was just like so intensely embarrassing for me. And so um, what was funny was like years later, five or six years later, I was working for the same chef at a different restaurant. And when that time when my parents came, he cooked all the meat well done. <laughs> they were like, this is the best lamb we've ever had. <laughs> uh, my next, my, uh, the next question is, who is who's the person you've learned the most from that you've never met? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, maybe George Saunders. Mm, interesting. Um, I just think he's an incredible writer and really amazing person. Like just listening to him talk. I've listened to so many interviews and read a lot from him about the craft of writing. And he seems so focused above all on kindness and, um, you know, humanity at, before even being a writer, like the importance of being a good person. And so to me, I feel like I've learned so much. I always remember that this person that I hold in such high esteem, you know, for his craft is also focused on just being a good human. And so it's a nice thing to be reminded of. Oh, wonderful. And finally, what is your most memorable in a good way meal, whether it's like a thing that you ate very early in your life and you're like, wow, that's great. Or it was for the company um, we've gotten like one, one answer we've gotten to this is somebody who just like went on a date and had great wine and like thought that was just the best. So it can be that similar. <laughs> or it can be like a really elaborate thing, but like, what's your most memorable in a good way meal? I don't know. I mean, I, I wrote about this in the book and I, it's just a memory that I will never, you know, it's so formative for me, but <laughs> when I was, so I grew up in San Diego and, um, I kind of had one foot in two worlds. Like I was, you know, my mom told us that when we we went to school, that was America. But when we came home, this was Iran. And we were to, you know, speak Farsi and eat Persian food and respect our elders. And and so um, I was always very conscious of having this like sort of strange double life. And in some ways that manifested itself by just our ge like our geography and where we were. And that I had some very typically Californian parts of my life, including going to the beach a lot. Like I've always loved the beach. And so my mom always had our like bathing suits and everything in the car for me and my brother so that if, you know, we were caught in traffic or whatever, she'd just swerve off and we'd go to the beach. And so she somehow always had snacks for us and the snack that I always remember and I still eat and it's a really classic thing. Like if you go to any Persian restaurant, it's the first thing they bring to your table was bread and feta cheese and cucumbers. And mm -hmm. so I just remember emerging from the ocean and having coming and you're like so thirsty from the salt water, you know, going in your mouth and you come and you eat this cucumber and it's so refreshing and cold. And sometimes she'd have grapes and watermelon. And then we eat this like salty cheese wrapped in lavash bread. And it was just sort of this perfect, um, in Farsi, the word is logme. It mm. means like a mouthful, the perfect bite. Yeah. And it really was the perfect bite. And then, you know, when I sat down to write the book, I was like, oh, duh, it's the perfect bite. It's balanced in salt and fat and acid. Like, but it just was, um, 
it was just such a beautiful sort of act of love from my mom. And it was sort of this hybrid experience of my Californianness and my Iranianness. And um, yeah, it's it's very funny. My brothers are always like, you talk so much about those stupid cucumber and cheese sandwiches, <laughs> but it really was important to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the book is Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. You can buy it in bookstores, uh, on Amazon, wherever you find books. So, I mean, thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Delightful to talk to you. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) A well-prepared podcast has well-prepared closing credits. And here are our beautifully prepped closing credits, which we're setting out on the table for you. A centerpiece for you to carve into. The executive producer of I Think You're Interesting and the host is Todd Vanderwerf. And in case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. This week's episode was recorded in two locations. I was in the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. Samin was in the Vox Media offices in San Francisco. Our editor this week is Srinivas Ramamurthy. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, please do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. Helps us get the word out. It helps people uh, realize that we exist. It helps us get great guests. It's really really helpful in terms of climbing the rankings and and getting people interested. And if you have any comments, you can leave them in a review. I read all of them. If you have any qualms or concerns or questions, you can also email me, todd at vox.com. You can also email the podcast itself at itye.podcast, itye.podcast at vox.com. Or you can tweet at me at tvoti, tvoti. We will be back next week with another person from the world of arts and entertainment, media and culture, that somebody that I think is interesting. And until then, make sure your gravy has no lumps in it because there's no better way to disappoint your mother-in-law than a lumpy gravy. I, I, I would know. I would know. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste.